Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be here um, this morning. Um, now, this morning, my son Bill, along with Anson and Paul Chang, ran a half marathon. Uh, I'm not sure whether Anson and Paul survived because uh, I, when I spoke to Bill on the phone, he hadn't spotted them. But I, I, I know Bill survived. Uh, uh, 20, uh, running a half marathon is a great achievement. It's 21 Ks. Uh, it's, it feels like a long way, let me tell you. But it's not as long as one of the most famous and gruelling ultramarathons, uh, which is the Sydney to Melbourne race. Um, all 875 Ks of it. In 1983, there was the normal array of international and Aussie athletes lined up at the starting line for the Sydney to Melbourne ultramarathon, uh, all super fit and mostly under 30. But amidst them, sticking out like a sore thumb, was this old bloke wearing overalls and work boots, 61-year-old Cliff Young, a sheep and potato farmer from Colac in Victoria. No one had ever heard of Cliff and no one took him seriously. During the first day, things kind of went as expected. Uh, the the favourites were, were up in front, um, the experienced athletes, but people were, ex uh, and Cliff fell well behind uh, the, the pack as expected. But still, people were intrigued by this old bloke, um, this nobody without e even wearing proper running gear, who didn't even run properly. He had this kind of a slow shuffle instead of a proper running gait. Now, the accepted wisdom in the uh, Sydney to Melbourne race was that the top athletes generally, generally ran for about 18 hours a day and then slept for six hours before getting up and doing it all again. But Cliff obviously hadn't got the memo. Uh, he had no thoughts for pacing himself like that. Instead, his plan was to just keep running without stopping. And that's what he did. And that meant that during the six hours the other athletes were sleeping, Cliff made ground on them. He ended up, eventually by the fifth day, Cliff had hit the lead. He eventually won the race in world record time. When he was handed a check, winner's check, for $10,000, he was shocked. He had no idea that there was any money involved in this race. Uh, and instead of pocketing his winnings, Cliff decided to share his prize amongst the other fellow runners. An unlikely hero, if ever there was one. And in today's story, in Judges 4 and 5, we meet two unlikely heroes, Deborah and Jael. Firstly, they were women. It sounds terribly sexist to us, but the reality of that patriarchal society was that a woman being a hero and a saviour just wasn't something that came into people's radar. But then Jael was doubly unlikely to earn a place on the podium. She was not just a woman, but a lowly foreigner as well. An outsider with pretty much zero status in the eyes of the Israelites. But we'll see today that it, that's the way that God delights in working. He bursts out of our box and time and time again 
He constantly surprises us as he demonstrates that he is the God who can use the most unexpected people, the most unexpected circumstances to achieve his purposes and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story in Judges 4 and 5 today. We thank you that um, the story doesn't go according to the script that we would write. Uh, it's not Barak, um, the, the warrior who is the hero, but it is Jael, uh, an outsider who is a woman, and that you bring your glory through that. And we thank you, Father, that that is your way, to use the outsider <clears throat> to turn things outside in. And Father, we recognise that we were outsiders who have been brought into your kingdom and we thank you for the wonderful news of your gospel that we were, um, we were cut off on the outside and yet you have brought us close to you through the gospel. We pray today that you would give us ears to listen, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us by this message and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read through Judges, with each new story, with each new judge, we get a sense that we've been here before, don't we? There's a predictability about two things. There's a depressing predictability, firstly, that the Israelites will fall back into sin. And that's what we get in verse 1, in the first verse of our story. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead. Remember Ehud, we heard about last week, he was the last judge. The minute he dies, Israel fall back into their own ways, old ways. A leopard doesn't change its spots and people don't change. Their religion is never more than skin deep and they are only ever faithful to Yahweh while they have a judge who is prodding and pushing them to trust in him. Then as soon as they go um, go down and push up daisies, the people revert to their default natural state. And the second thing that is predictable and constant in Judges is God. We saw last week that he never just abandons his people to their own devices. And so when they, send, he, when they sin, he sends an enemy to oppress them. And this isn't just for their punishment. Yes, it is for their punishment, but it is more than that. It's also God's severe mercy because he loves them and he will do everything he can to cause Israel to cry out to him and to turn back to him. And so chapter 4 starts with God selling Israel into the hands of one Jabin, king of Canaan. And then the author sets up our story by introducing the key characters. And it's a classic story of good guys versus bad guys. There's a new judge, Deborah, and we are expecting things to go according to script. In the pattern of the book of Judges, the judge is the one who delivers the people. They're going to beat up on the bad guys and deliver the people. So let's see how this story pans out. So first point, it's a story of two good guys and two bad guys. But firstly, we are introduced to the two baddies. Verse 2. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based 
in Hasarit, I can't even say it, Harasheth Hagoyim. We don't even know where that, where that is. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Jabin, the king of Canaan. If you've been paying attention to the first three chapters in Judges, you'll notice that Israel's enemies are getting progressively nearer. Othniel, the first judge, was up against Cushan Rishathaim from Mesopotamia. If you know your ancient Near East geography, Mesopotamia is basically Babylon, uh, 600 kilometres to the east of Israel. That's a long way in those days. Then Ehud defeated Eglon from Moab. Moab is also to Israel's east, but a near neighbour. The enemies are getting closer. Then, um, then there's Shamgar, who we didn't look at. He only gets one verse. He defeated the Philistines, Israel's neighbours again, but this time to the west. Moab to the east, Philistia to the west. But now the enemy is in Israel's midst because Jabin is a Canaanite. And remember that Israel now occupies what used to be the land of Canaan. Remember that the Israelites were told to completely destroy the Canaanites so that they didn't intermarry and that they didn't lead them astray. Jabin threatens not only to enslave Israel physically, but spiritually as well, sucking her in to worship Canaanite gods and adopting Canaanite culture. We're told that Jabin cruelly oppresses Israel for 20 years. But only then does Israel think that it might be a good idea to ask God for help. That's a good indicator of Israel's spiritual condition, isn't it? 20 years it takes them to turn to God. Well, the second baddie we're introduced to briefly is Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army. He's the one literally who's going to be on the front lines uh, of the battle. Jabin the king, he's, well, he's in the background. The military campaign will be led by Sisera. Then we go to the good corner. And we've got, in the Israelite camp, we've got two leaders. Firstly, we've got Deborah. Have a look from verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She was a bit different to the other judges we've met because she was a prophet. It seems that Deborah was more of a spiritual leader than a military leader. Notice that she was leading Israel while they were still being oppressed by Jabin. So she wasn't the one chosen to actually deliver uh, Israel, at least not on her own. And she was a bit like Jabin. She was kind of Jabin's opposite number. She was more in the background pulling the strings than being on the front line. And then we are introduced to Barak. He's the opposite number to Sisera. 
and the two of them would face off as Barak would lead Israel into battle. Deborah then acts like the prophet that she is and passes on to Barak what Yahweh wants him to do. Look at verse 6. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. The story is going to script. Well, at least mostly. God is showing himself to be consistent, constant in his love for the people. Even though they wait 20 years to cry out to him, they eventually do. And sure enough, God comes to the party. He is coming through for them in providing a deliverer. But the story is taking a bit of a different turn as well because Deborah isn't a run-of-the-mill judge. Firstly, to state the obvious, she's a woman. But as we've also seen, she's also a prophet. And then she's not single-handedly going to save the people. God is also going to use this guy Barak as well. But then it seems that Barak shuffles his feet and hesitates. Verse 8, Barak said to her, to Deborah, If you go with me, I will go. But if you, do not, if you don't go with me, I won't go. Barak sees Sisera and his 900 chariots and thinks, I ain't going nowhere unless Deborah is there beside me. Perhaps it's a bit of cowardice. Perhaps he genuinely wants to make sure that God is with him. We're not sure. How does Deborah respond? Certainly, I will go with you, she says. But because of the course you are now taking, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak misses out on being the hero of the parade once Jabin is going to be toast, which is a kind of a foregone conclusion. God's going to give the victory to a woman. Now, there's a turn of events that no one would have expected. And it seems that Deborah is going to be the one who would deliver Israel after all. And so the story goes. Barak and Deborah march with 10,000 men for a date with destiny as they prepare to give Sisera what's coming to him. But then there's a strange little verse in the middle of all this. Have a look at verse 11. comes out of nowhere. Now Heba the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. Who's this Kadesh character, sorry, Heba character, and who cares about him taking his Kenard's hire truck to move house? Um, for, for, he's actually moving house from the south of Israel right up to the north into the battle zone. Well, we're told that he is a Kenite. You may remember that name coming up before in Judges. Moses' wife was a Kenite. Uh, and, and we met them briefly in chapter 1, where we told that the Kenites settled peacefully with the Israelites right down in the south uh, of the country in Judah. 
Now, for some reason, our man Hebar moves away from his people right up north near the Sea of Galilee, where all this action is taking place. And that happens to be where Sisera and his chariots are causing havoc. We'll come back to Hebar and his family shortly. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Sisera hears that Barak is in town and goes out with a welcoming committee of 900 chariots. Deborah then says to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And she is proven right. Yahweh does go ahead of Barak and Deborah and fights for them. Verse 15, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. God proves faithful once again. Things are going according to script. And it looks like Barak is going to be the hero after all. We told he goes on to destroy Sisera's whole army. Not a man was left. But then, wait, Sisera gets away, verse 17. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Hebar the Kenite. Remember that name? Because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Hebar the Kenite. And this is where Hebar the Kenite comes in. Remember, he had moved house up into the battle zone. But it isn't Hebar himself who comes into the action. It's his wife, Jael. Their family had made an alliance with Jabin, probably because they, um, being non-Israelites, Jabin probably cozied up to Hebar and Jael, assuming that they had a common dislike for Israel. So they were kind of natural um, it was natural for them to make an alliance. But then comes our second point. Sisera walks into jail. When Sisera is trying to hotfoot it out of trouble, he naturally heads straight for jail's tent. He obviously knows the family as well as Jabin having an alliance with them. He breathes a sigh of relief. Surely jail is going to provide protection. Uh, and from, from these angry Israelites pursuing me. Uh, sure enough, Sisera is greeted by a friendly face when, she runs up, when he runs up to the tent of Jael. Verse 18, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. Sisera then begs Jael to stand guard and ward off these nasty Israelites who are going to come and look for me. But then things take a nasty turn for Sisera. Jael doesn't end up being so friendly after all. Verse 21. But Jael, Hebar's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. And that was the end of Jabin's army. Jabin lived on, but not for long, apparently. Jabin's fate was sealed when Sisera died along with his army. Verse 23. 
On that day, God sub- subdued Canaan, Jabin, sorry, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jamin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. So we're not told the details of that, but presumably Jabin ended up meeting a sticky end and Israel completely uh, escaped from their oppression, from his oppression. So really the killer blow is dealt not by, um, not by Deborah, not by Barak, but by Jael. This Kenite woman, this outsider and foreigner. And what are, we, what are we to make of her and a tent peg? Isn't she actually a deceiver and a turncoat who killed an unarmed man in cold blood? But that's not the picture that the author paints of jail. Look again at verse 23. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. So that comes straight after the description of Jael killing Sisera. And so what's clear from this is that it is God's victory and he uses Jael as his instrument. She is doing God's work. Now sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, it is true that we read about God using morally suspect people to achieve his purposes. But if we flip over to chapter 5, we get another clue about how we are to interpret jail. We aren't going to look at the chapter in detail, but it's, chapter 5 is a victory song of Deborah and Jael. Uh, sorry, Deborah and Barak. It's like a kind of campfire ballad that the Israelites would have sung to their children to commemorate, celebrate uh, the, the victory that God brought. And what's interesting about this chapter is how much airtime is given to jail. In comparison, Deborah gets three short mentions. Barak gets even less with two mentions. But then the climax of the story is seven whole verses dedicated to jail. And as we read the story, there's no sense that the author is squeamish. Um, or embarrassed about what she did. Instead, it recounts the whole story in gory detail. Let's just pick it up from uh, chapter 5, verse 26. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. After her, um, her feet, he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Notice the repetition. It's kind of reveling in, um, in, in the sticky end that Sisera met. And as Jael is introduced, it's with a resounding note of approval. So we go hop, um, hop back to verse 24, which introduces a whole section for, of Jael. Uh, the author says, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. Far from being embarrassed by jail, Judges holds her up as the hero. She's the saviour. She's the one God used to deliver Israel. And notice that we're reminded in verse 24 that she's a Kenite. The most blessed of women isn't Deborah, the judge of Israel, 
but this foreigner nobody, this outsider who delivered Israel. God chose to use jail to bring that victory and she gets his stamp of approval as well. Now, I'm not going to go into the issue of whether or not what Jael did was morally acceptable. We'll have to leave that for another day. But I just want to look at the very last verse of Judges 5 that helps us to see the big picture. Straight after this description of Jael killing Sisera, uh, we have verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. That's a prayer asking for God's justice to be done on earth, that evil be dealt with, that God's enemies um, be vanquished and that the righteous flourish. That's God's end game of putting things right. And God will go to any length to ensure that sin and evil are dealt with because he is a faithful God. He will go to any lengths to make sure that his people are saved and restored to wholeness. Sometimes we might be squeamish about the way that God brings justice, like Jael deceiving Sisera and killing him. But part of the problem, I think, is that we don't see how black sin is and how evil, evil is. We don't see it from God's perspective. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a famous German pastor who was martyred for being involved in the plot to kill Hitler. He knew that assassinating Hitler wasn't morally right. But he argued that Hitler was so evil that he had to do whatever it takes to get rid of him. God will do whatever it takes to deal with evil in the world. And in fact, he has already done it by his unique, is our third point, by his outside in ways to bring justice to the world. By outside in, I mean God's ways of using outsiders to carry out his plans. He did that with jail. He delights in using, in doing the unexpected, surprising thing, in bringing salvation from the most unlikely source, a Kenite woman, a foreigner who didn't even live with her people. An outsider who was a pariah, no doubt, because she had made an alliance with the enemy. But she became the hero. She acted with courage and faith that overshadowed both Barak and Deborah. And through the ages, God has continued to turn the values of the world upside down, outside in, by using the people despised by this world to bring glory to God. And so the prophet Isaiah wrote about another outsider who would save his people. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, Isaiah is looking forward to someone who would come, 
who would have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. And yet God used Jesus to finally defeat God's enemies and crush their heads of sin and death and evil. And he did it in the most surprising way, the most shocking way. Jesus' own father rejecting him and pouring out his wrath on him, making him the ultimate outsider so that we could come inside, into God's presence, into his kingdom. And now that God has done that through Jesus, he continues to delight in his outside-in ways. He loves to use those who are despised and rejected to bring him glory. And friends, you and I are all outsiders in the eyes of the world. Just by standing up and declaring that you are a Christian is at the, at the very least strange and weird for our culture. But at worst, it may mean that we are labelled as bigots, narrow-minded, prejudiced against LGBTQI, and, and it goes on. We've seen in Judges that God delights in using surprising and unexpected ways to bring about his plans and show his glory. And one of those ways is to use the outsider. Often in the church, God uses the outsider. So instead of looking at people the way the world does, looking for those with an impressive gift set, for those with obvious outward leadership qualities, look for those who are humble unimpressive, the quiet loner to show us God's heart in in ways that the rest of us can't, to show us his glory in ways that other people can't. And it's often not in tangible, measurable ways. It's often those people who are faithful, the faithful prayers, the faithful servers behind the scenes, the real heroes of the faith, who quietly trust God in the midst of real adversity. And finally, God's outside-in ways mean that he has a special place for those who are least in our society, for the outsider who sits on the margins. He delights in bringing the outsider onto the inside. And so both in church and outside, we should have our radar tuned to those who are struggling to belong. When we come here on Sunday, make an effort to look out for visitors. Come early. Come before 11 o'clock. I know that's a radical thing to say. But come early because newcomers usually come early. Look out for them. Make Make it your ambition when you come to church to talk to someone who's new. And then after the service, instead of going straight to your friends, look around 
for the person sitting on their own. When it comes to taking God's love to those outside the church, ask the question, who is there in your workplace or your classes at uni or your friendship circle who is on the outside? Who can you show, how can you show them God's love? Even at the level of choosing a career if you're at that stage in life. Don't just think about the money or, or job prospects. Think about what job is actually going to make a difference for benefiting the marginalised, those forgotten by our society, those on the outside. And remember in all this that you were an outsider too, that you were cut off from God and from his love. You and I were without hope in the world. But God in his mercy delighted to bring us from the outside to the inside, to belong to his people, to share in his salvation. And he wants to use us, outsiders in the eyes of the world, to bring hope to the world through his outside in kingdom.